Disrupting Japan, Episode 58. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. It's hard to innovate in online commerce today. It seems like everything has been tried before, and now we're just looking at variations on a theme. At first glance, Material World seems like just another online fashion marketplace. But that first glance is deceiving. There's something very interesting going on here. But before I tell you what that is, I want you to meet someone. I want to tell you about Justa. Now, I've known these guys for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they're priced to be very startup friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by justa.io and see what they're about. Online marketplaces are usually designed to be low risk, Low capital organizations that focus on marketing and building a technology platform, with the buyers and sellers doing as much of the work as possible. Rie Yano, the founder of Material World, however, ended up taking a very different approach. By taking on inventory risk and shifting non scalable labor requirements onto her own team, they were able to build and scale a unique fashion commerce brand where so many before have failed. Her reasoning may surprise you a bit, but you know, she tells the story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Rie Yanao of Material World, and thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you, Tim, for inviting me. It's great to have you here. So, Material World is a fashion trade in service. And, well, rather than have me explain it, why don't you explain a bit about what Material World is and how it works? Sure thing. Material World is based in New York. We're a service that helps women easily refresh their closets. Oftentimes, we find ourselves waking up, looking into our closet, and feeling like this、uh, sense of guilt or frustration. In that, what's in your closet may not be what you want to wear or how you feel that day. We created Material World so that you can constantly evolve your wardrobe. One day you might be feeling like you want to be a powerful woman, another day you might feel like you want to dress with some beautiful, kind of emotional colors. Making sure that our service can enable that idea or feeling that you have by、okay. making the refresh very simple. So, usually that's done by just, well, buying more clothes. Yeah. But Material World has a little bit of a different approach.、Mm -hmm. So, what are the mechanics? How does it work? Sure. Everyone thinks about shopping for new clothing when they think about trying to become different or refreshing. Where we're quite different is that we really focus on the reuse of. Designer fashions,、uh, pieces with quality that lasts long.、Um, we know that even if one piece of fashion may not be you know, good for you anymore, if it's a you know, high quality, then there's definitely going to be someone else that's going to be excited to have that in their wardrobe. So we connect secondhand clothing、uh, by using this trade in service where、uh, women can easily mail in 
their fashion pieces that they're no longer wearing to us and instantly get an offer uh, to go and shop new. In the meantime, the collected uh, fashion pieces are, are then resold uh, to our customers so that we can then excite them with new pieces of merchandise. So what seems to be different about Material World is you don't simply give them store credit or send them a check. You have a very interesting system with sort of a prepaid card. Yes. And you're connected with several of the department stores mm -hmm. where they can use that. Do most of your customers choose to use those credits to buy new clothing or do they choose to buy clothing that other customers have traded in? So it's actually both. We actually started by offering gift cards to retailers oh, okay. uh, in exchange. And we only launched this reloadable kind of prepaid debit card last fall in 2015. And we did so because we wanted to create this card. Essentially, it sits in your wallet once you, you know, register with Material World. And it becomes so instant and easy. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have to think about the chore and the pain of you know, trying to clean up your closet and get rid of things. All you need to do is mail things in, do nothing else, and we'll take care of everything for you. And all you need to do is check your, your debit card because we're going to continue to reload it with money real time that can then be used with our retail partners. And we think of it as like a fashion currency. So you can't use it at Starbucks. You can't go mm -hmm. and use it you know, to fill up your gas, you know, it's really focused on continuously evolving your closet. Well, I also love the idea of the card because it provides an anchor for your brand mm -hmm. into your customer's everyday experience. Yeah. They've, they've got this in their wallets, yeah. uh, they've got some money on it, mm -hmm. they're, they're constantly reminded to either go spend that money yeah. at your partners or to send you more clothes. That's right. So it's really connecting the two experiences. When you think about it, shopping for new things is like this fun sport. You know, it's exciting. The day you shop something, you're excited to share it with people. You want to wear it to work. Uh, but then the feeling of getting rid of things is horrible. It's painful. It's, it's like a chore. It takes time. And whether you're going to donate it, sell it, throw it away, it's, it's not easy. Is it really? Okay. It's not. So... What we thought is how can we make that getting rid of fashion part something that is rewarding and exciting and easy so that you can feel great about it. And you can only feel great about it if you also feel like it's doing good, right? So when you, the easiest thing to do is to throw it away. Right, and that's and that, a sense of guilt. Oh, absolutely, because you know, you're going and buying new things and wasting you know, precious pieces that could you know, be worn for many more years and the sense of guilt when you're just throwing it away because it's the most convenient thing to do is quite awful. But if you know that someone else is going to take care of it and make sure it's going to find a new home. It will be loved somewhere exactly. else. You know, that's an exciting feeling that you, know, you don't have to do the work, but you have chosen a service that will allow that to happen. So you can really focus on the fun part of going and discovering what else is exciting for your wardrobe. Do you find that your customers are using this service as part of their sort of seasonal buying routine? Do you see this spike of returns from the same people every fall and every summer? And so that's an interesting question because when we started the service, we thought it would be maybe end of season, right. you know, following the trends in the, in the retail cycle. Uh, our repeat customers actually use this every two months. Every two months? Every two months. So that's on average. 
Uh, and what that means is, on average, you know, our customers are mailing us about 10 pieces of clothing each time. So every two months, that cycle is happening. Huh. So that's not seasonal. It it's, isn't. Is that just the time it takes someone to get used to or get bored with a particular piece of clothing? Well, for us, you know, what we recommend, and it's actually what I do myself, is if you have something new in your closet, it's time to let go of something else, right? So it's, it's really not about waiting until that end of year moment when you really have to do your big, you know, clean out oh, in the I house. See. It's a constant refresh. Um, to just make sure you have a current closet that continues to speak to how you want to dress. Okay. And after two months, I guess that's the time it takes before you realize that, no, this really isn't for me. That's right. Time to let it go. That's right. right. And, you know, a lot of things trigger that feeling. You know, sometimes it's obvious things like you're moving apartments Mm. or, um, you know, you got promoted or... Um, you know, you got married, you had kids. There's a lot of transition moments. It makes sense that you want to refresh your wardrobe for those transitions. There are other reasons, you know, when we talk with our customers of why anyone would want to continue to evolve their closet, it doesn't come with any kind of specific trigger. It really is a bit more emotional. Yeah, And I that's why that. um, for us, you know, we we realize that letting go of pieces of clothing, even if you haven't worn it for a year, is a very emotional experience for our customers. Okay. Well, actually, tell me about your customers because fashion in general and even sort of the luxury consignment space, Mm -hmm. it's fiercely competitive. Mm -hmm. So are you focusing on a particular niche within that industry? Who uses Material World? Yeah, so we have a service that targets women who love shopping designer fashions, quality fashion pieces. Um, You can think of it as any type of brand, uh, such as Theory, Vince, Tory Burch, all the way up to the European brands, such as Chanel Hermes. And our buying team, our merchandising team, determines uh, every month what new brands to add, um, what brands to remove, Uh, from our service offering and the way we really define those is is really thinking about what are the brands uh, that we believe have long-lasting value and uh, and demand from our customers. Well, you handle a tremendous number of brands, right? Yes, Uh, we handle 260 brands. Okay, that's quite a few. Yes, Um, but so we don't accept fast fashion. Mm -hmm. We don't accept uh, brands that we know will end up kind of tearing apart after a season. And so in doing so, we are encouraging and also uh, naturally gathering customers who love to shop for quality. So what channels have been most effective for you in in getting the word out in this this crowded market? Yeah, two have been very effective. Um, One is through social media. So Facebook has been a very big channel for us to get the word out, uh, especially for our customers who are trading in with us. Mm -hmm. Um, Naturally, our our trade-in customers tend to be a little bit older, um, anywhere. It is between 25 to 55, um, but more so of, of our customers are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And they're really shopping new merchandise all the time. Okay. And, uh, and using our service to kind of trade in. Now, we also have a, a younger audience on the shopping side. Uh, they want, you know, they love the fact that they can buy a very expensive, high quality designer piece for 
$40-$50 pre-owned through our site. So there's this uh, you know this access that was never there before and we have amazing price points for our customers so that naturally then kind of uh, gears towards a younger audience of women who you know for anywhere from college grads all the way up so are you using different social media channels to reach the sellers and the buyers uh, we just did start it. Uh, okay. We actually started our Snapchat account oh, okay. uh, in uh, August and that is really focusing on the shopping community because we do know that um, you know most of our sellers are not on Snapchat. <clears throat> right. A lot most of our buyers are. But with the with the visual nature mm-hmm. of your business, I would imagine uh, Pinterest and mm-hmm. Instagram would be huge channels for you as well. Yes, I think we use the channels for different purposes. Okay. So Facebook has been very effective in acquisition of customers uh, and really promoting our trade-in service. Instagram is really, uh, for us, a branding tool. We're not really looking for, you know, what are the conversion rates of customers coming through Instagram. Uh, It really is more about a a channel where we can tell a story around what Material World is. And, you know, to go back to your point, you know, fashion resale has been around for decades. It's nothing new. You know, eBay's been around in the U.S. and in Japan, you know, there's been Komehyo, there's Daikokyo, there's a bunch of resellers who are, have been in the country as a brick-and-mortar um, business ever since World War II. We think that we're quite different from the typical fashion resale businesses in that um, we're offering a full service that is continuing to support the customer's life cycle. And any merchandise that goes through our service, whether it was bought through us new or bought through us used or traded in with us continues to basically um, come back to our service, come back to our platform. So in doing so, we have created a service that is not really about fashion resale. It's really more about how can we help our customers kind of continue to, you know, um, well, number one, be informed about what is the best timing Uh, to sell and what are the best things to sell, right? But also uh, being able to inform them on what new to buy uh, and in doing so, giving them recommendations from the retailers and the brands that are constantly promoting new products. um, That really helps us really differentiate our service offering from any of the typical kind of fashion resale businesses. The way I see it, I mean, you are in, in some ways, a very traditional industry, Mm -hmm. um, but I think your business model is very, very different from the way traditional companies are operating in that industry. So let's dig down on the business model for a minute, because I think it's fascinating. For example, the the prepaid card that we were discussing a minute ago. Now that's obviously a huge advantage to your partners because people are going to spend more than whatever their balance is on the card. That's right. So... Are you making money on a commission that your customers spend at these stores? Are the stores paying you a uh, membership fee to be part of the program or some combination of both of those? Yes. So um, this is all very new for us and no one else has such a product out in the market. 
So we're the only players who have this prepaid reloadable debit card. Mm -hmm. And we work with Discover as our network partner. And we also have a bank and a program manager to really manage this new service offering to the customers. We load their debit card with their um, earnings. We then introduce all of the retailers we work with and the, and the products that we can recommend uh, that are sold through these retailers on our website. Oh, I see. And when our customers then go to, uh, to shop uh, with us, uh, we actually have an affiliate uh, relationship with the retailers um, and thus have a commission uh, that we earn from retailers every time we drive our customers to shop with them online. Now, that is only the online portion. Our vision, you know, with the debit card that we created, it's omnichannel. Sure. So you can actually shop online with it, but you can go into any physical, you know, Barney's, Saks, Neiman Marcus, and use it in store. And we continue to track all of that data around the customers. So essentially, we've built a product that allows us to basically market to the retailers, the, the data that we have around our customers. What is in their closet? What are they trading in with okay. us? And where are they shopping? What are they shopping? And that data set is going to help us then receive marketing, kind of promotional revenue from retailers and brands who want to target our customer base. So that's kind of secondary from the affiliate side business model. No, but that makes a lot of sense because it's not simply basic demographic information, which all the brands already have. That's right. But you would know if someone is normally shopping at Neiman Marcus, yeah. what are these people's second most popular store? What are these pivot points when people switch brands? That's right. Which is, I'm sure, unbelievably valuable to these yeah. companies. And you know, you, you find a lot of brands and e-commerce companies always talking about personalization being the next thing. You know, if you're a brand, you, know, you only have the data of how your customer is reacting with your brand, whether it's online or in store. Right. If you're a retailer, you also only have the data for what merchandise you sell. Because we're really rooted on offering a service that helps the customer first. And, you know, we're not manufacturers. We're not retailers. We're a service provider. Um, so in that way, we have access to literally every aspect of the customer's closet, which then... We want to make sure, you know, we're not going to be selling that data. It's more about how do we make that data more relevant for the customer mm -hmm. and then bring the right retailers and brands to market the customer and, and, and thus have that revenue generation from there. I really love the whole physical nature of the card. Yeah. Um, because so much of fashion retail, especially on the high end, yeah. takes place in person. It doesn't happen over the internet. That's right. And a lot of the brands have collections they just refuse to sell over the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and the physical card kind of ties all that together. Exactly. It's almost like a fashion black card. Right. Right. And it's black, as a matter of fact. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when customers send you their clothes, yeah. this is not consignment based. You yeah. actually take that inventory. That's right. So do you consider that inventory risk and holding this risk to be a concern? And how do you mitigate that? Well, for us, it's quite unique. Uh, inventory for us is very different from inventory for typical fashion e-commerce businesses in that we are the ones setting the price point mm -hmm. for what we buy and, and determining what we buy. And we do that based on our historical data 
and it's real-time data on what items and categories are reselling for in the current market. So you're actually going out and screen scraping eBay and no. secondary markets or? Well, we actually have enough data internally from okay. our own resale historics to have confidence in how much we can sell that merchandise for. We do do some comparison analysis for brands and categories that we may not have accepted enough of in the past. Uh, for that, we would look at other resale websites such as eBay, but prices do differ quite a bit depending on what channel they're sold on. For example, the same Chanel bag could be sold for a much higher price point in a physical consignment store versus online. That makes sense. Right. So, yeah. so there's differences depending on brand and categories, uh, which then we basically take that data in to determine the, the, the price that we auto-populate when we're pricing each of the, the merchandise that comes to, through our way. And we've created a system where actually 100% of our merchandise sells through within two months. So it's a That's very good. fast cycle. And it allows us to continue to grow quickly without um, worrying too much about inventory space. It sounds like a lot of your decision on whether to accept an item or not depends on how fast you're, you think you can move that item. That's right. Um, how fast or how high. Okay. How so are there particular things that sell well and sell poorly? Or for example, shoes easier to sell than skirts? Absolutely. So handbags are great in the resale market because as you can imagine, they are built to last for years and years, leather right. uh, material. And, and there's no sizes. That's right. There's no sizing issue. And the trend in the handbag category doesn't move as quickly as uh, soft apparel. For example, every new season, there's a new look, there's a new color that's trending uh, that determines the price point within soft apparel. Uh, so it fluctuates much more and there's a bit of a drastic difference depending on what brand or what style is popular that month versus with investment pieces such as handbags and shoes. You know, women tend to carry it for a longer period of time. Uh, and they take care of it as well. So um, even when they resell the handbags, you know, five years later, they can retain the value much more so than soft apparel, which goes through a very fast liquidation cycle. So that makes sense from inside looking out. Mm -hmm. But it seems like you'd have a bit of a mismatch problem where most of the supply would be people who are getting rid of last year's fashions. That's right. And they're holding on to their handbags for five or six years. That's right. Well, that's where our service adds a lot of value because our sweet spot is clothing. Uh, often a lot of fashion resale does focus on only accepting things they know they can sell, which are Louis Vuitton, Chanel handbags reused, right? Okay. Um, a, a lot of players really focus on those categories. But for us, our sweet spot is actually contemporary uh, fashion. Uh, so knowing that every customer has you know, a pair of theory pants or, you know, a jacket from, you know, Tory Burch. These are actually what makes up around 80% of our trade-in goods. Huh. Yeah. So there are certain items that just everyone needs to have in their wardrobe somewhere. Yes. Now, getting back to the idea of that inventory risk, mm -hmm. where it seems like most online consignment companies have problems is in liquidity. 
mm-hmm. having a supply and demand of both buyers and sellers at the same time. Yeah. Did you make the decisions to hold the inventory to get around that, or was the was inventory part of your strategy from day one? It was not our strategy from day one. Uh, we started our service as a uh, peer-to-peer marketplace, in fact. Okay. Uh, and we focused on designer fashions, but what we realized was a challenge when we launched as a peer-to-peer marketplace is that um, most, the majority of merchandise that our customers were posting were not uh, designer fashions. They were the H&M's, they were the Zara. So you couldn't control your brand. That's right. And the customer base was very different. What we learned from the year and a half that we ran the marketplace was that a lot of younger women of age 18 to early 20s, or you know, you might call them millennials these right. days, uh, are okay with taking photos of their goods, putting a price on it, interacting with a potential buyer, having their own closet revealed publicly on, on the internet, uh, while a lot of the customers who do have designer fashions in their closet felt like they would prefer to use a service that would take care of that. Is that because the sellers tend to skew a bit older in the demographics, do you think? I think so. I, I think that marketplaces are great for both, well, number one, for buyers who are looking for great value and sellers who are willing to take a lot of time in order to maximize their earnings. Okay. Right, so if you think about eBay, right, you have to do everything yourself as a seller. Uh, and in fact, if the buyer doesn't like it, you know, you might have to deal with returns. It's definitely a painful process, but you can maximize your sales because you know eBay takes around 10% commission, right? Versus if you go to any other consignment store or you know, resale sites, if you choose a service that will do everything for you, you're not gonna get as much on the earning side. But I guess it makes sense because the on the buyer side, the people you're targeting, their primary concern is probably not squeezing every dollar out of the sale. It's making some money off of it. It's avoiding that guilt of throwing it away. Mm-hmm. And so that you just fill that niche for them. Yep. So on the seller side, you know, we realized that our service was not convenient enough. Right. Not hassle-free enough to target the right audience. And then on the buyer side, what we realized was that when you make it a marketplace, the biggest issue is fake goods when it's designer fashion. Of course. So everyone wants some third-party author- you know, service with authority to come and authenticate those goods so that they can purchase it with, with the confidence that it's true. So taking on inventory, controlling your own inventory was the yeah. only way to control your brand in this that's case. That's right. That's right. That makes perfect sense. Now, you're based in New York City mm-hmm. and operating all over the U.S. Do you have plans on entering other markets? Um, not in the short term. Okay. It seems that this model would work everywhere. Mm -hmm. But do you think there are unique aspects of foreign markets that would make certain parts of the business difficult or certain parts easier? Absolutely. So there's three things that we look at. Number one is the supply. 
So when you look at countries such as Japan, it is actually one of the top three countries of where you can find the most amount of pre-owned、uh, designer handbags. Right. And so you'll find that a lot of players from all over the world actually procure. Uh, su- supply from the Japanese market. What's the third one? The U.S., Japan,、uh, France. France,、oh, of yeah. course. Yeah. So when we look at countries, we want to make sure where is the where is the supply in the world coming from, and the second is where is the buyer, where is the appetite to purchase pre-owned high-quality merchandise, and when you think about that, it tends to skew towards developed countries. Okay. Uh, where consumers are pretty familiar with brands, and they like the fact that they can purchase a high-quality brand for great value. It seems like you're making a great case for being in Japan. Well, the third point is all about financial regulations.、Uh-oh. We have our own debit card that we launch, so we, you know, essentially have a payment service and. Um, what we've learned from entering the space is that it is a very highly regulated、um, industry. Where you know, being in the U.S., we have to think about what are state-specific restrictions before we launch any kind of、uh, product offering that's related to our debit card. So suddenly, you're running a fintech company. Yes, <laughs> that is that is the case. And when it becomes fintech, it is very challenging to think about cross-country. Uh, transactions. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So we definitely want to be able to really finesse our current debit card product offering in the U.S. You know, and understand, you know, even if it makes sense if we continue to do debit card, or you know, is it about going into being a wallet,、um, or is it is there any alternative to a Bitcoin where you know you don't have to just use it in the U.S. market, but you can actually shop. At retailers in Tokyo and Paris. Now, what kind of product offering will allow us to offer that kind of liquidity to our customers? We haven't, you know, found the answer yet, but it's very exciting because there's so much going on in the space. Excellent. Now, your investors are all—are they all Japanese now?、Uh, no, they're a mix of New York、okay. and、uh, Tokyo investors. Let's back up a little bit.、Mm-hmm. So. Material World launched in 2012、mm-hmm. with your co-founder Jai Zhang.、Mm-hmm. Now you were friends from Harvard Business School, right? Yes. But you didn't launch this company right out of school. No. Did you just stay friends for a long time? Did you were you brainstorming ideas for a couple of years? How did you come together to start this company? Yeah. So I had another startup、uh, when I was in. In business school, that I launched with a few other HBS friends, and when I graduated, I decided to shut that down、mm-hmm. and stay in the U.S. Since the, the original purpose of me going to business school was to really kind of learn what was out there outside of Japan, and when I decided to stay, I actually wanted to join U.S. startup and realized that I don't have a, no one will sponsor my visa. So I had to quickly figure out what what can I do, and I decided to join Coach in their digital marketing department as a producer. And the decision that I made there was based on you know a few things. I definitely wanted to be in the internet space, and I wanted to prepare for my next startup. Okay, so you wanted to learn. 
Yes. And I had a few different uh, industries that I thought I would be interested in, including fashion. And so that led me to taking that job at Coach. And Gia, my co-founder, has a background in operations and logistics and also took a job in fashion in New York uh, at Ralph Lauren and J. Crew. And the two of us were like the minorities at HBS. You know, what Harvard grad, you know, goes into fashion. Right, right. right. Everyone thought we were like You're supposed to go into one of the big consulting firms. That's right. Yeah, no, I think 80% of our classmates are, you know, either, you know, management consultants or investment bankers. Right. And the reason we got along from day one was that we were the minorities in school. So you both wanted to start your own thing? Yes, that's right. Okay. And we both came from a very different background from a traditional MBA student. I was in PR as a spokesperson for Mitsubishi, and she was uh, in, in operations in Chicago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier you mentioned that taking on inventory, that wasn't part of the original model. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the big changes you had to go through from the original model to now that you've, you've settled on something that seems to be working? Yeah, so um, we, as a culture, have just um, been all about change. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so I can't even start to describe all the things we did wrong and all the things we changed through the past four years. But I'm thinking about what were some of the key ones. I think that the biggest you know, change happened when two and a half years ago, when our marketplace was not working, and we felt like it wasn't working because we just couldn't, uh, we didn't have enough users. You know, we tried every avenue of... of Two sided marketplace. That's it's right. really tough. Supply and demand. We were like, wait a minute, where is the supply and you know, where is the demand? And we started testing this website on the side. And essentially, we used one of those free landing pages that you can get from sure. websites. You know, we didn't have anyone really. It was just Jia, myself, and our current CTO was working for us as a freelancer. And we were like, okay, let's get creative. Now we know that these women are too busy. You know, their items sold on our site, but they're complaining to us that they don't have time to ship it. Right. Hmm. And so we're like, okay, let's figure out if we can just create the most easy, we'll do it yourself website and see how the world would respond to this. So we essentially created this landing page, pulled some images from the web and said, mail us your stuff, we'll give you gift cards. And we started it by driving $30 of uh, worth of Facebook ads to this landing page every single day. Okay. And then within a month, we had trade-in bags coming in left and right from all over the US. Right. And we, because it was such a scrappy execution, literally we had a Google Doc where we were filling out, if, if a customer would sign up, there would be a Google Doc where we input the address. I was writing their address and you know creating their trade-in kit. Well, there's something else I think that's very important and profound with that decision. Mm-hmm. You were doing something that all of your investors would tell you not to do, mm-hmm. that probably at, in biz school they were telling you not to do. Mm-hmm. So you were taking on inventory risk. That's right. You were taking on the non-scalable part of putting things in boxes and, yeah. and, and doing all the part that all of the so-called smart lean startups are trying to outsource. Yeah. Yeah. And that ended up being the, the core strength of your business. That's right. 
So we thought, you know, oh, this won't work out and inventory is not going to be good. Right. And within a month, and we just had a small, you know, two table seat at a co-working office. So there was no space for inventory. There was no space to take <laughs> photos, but we just started to, you know, we were bombarded by like trade and receipts coming left and right. And that was a moment we were just like, oh my God, we're on to something. We're on to something. This is, this is what, oh, this is what the world calls product market fit. <laughs> like we've been, you know, trying so many different product iterations on our website and we never felt this. And here it is. It's as simple as that. Excellent. So that really is the beginning of our trade and service. And all we did was we bought some gift cards from one of the retailers direct. You know, it wasn't like we're getting a discount. We didn't have a partnership. We just bought it. Just to see if the idea would work. Yeah. And then we sent it to our customers and the customers were so excited to go and shop. Let me ask you um, kind of a personal question. Mm -hmm. So before you were saying that you, you came from a very different background than uh, the other students at business school. Yeah. And I read on your website that you moved around like 20 times. As yeah, a, as 25. A, 25 times. Was your dad a diplomat? Was he on the run from the law? What, why was he moving around so much? He was part of the whole automobile industry transition in the 80s. So he works for an automobile company. And um, they just continued to send him to different places. So he was being transferred around to yeah. all of these different production centers that's around right. the world. That's so right. you went to school all over the place. Yeah. Do you think that's part of why, unlike so many of your colleagues in business school, you had this kind of independent streak and this, this desire to start your own company? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if that was the reason because I never thought I would start a business. Really? No. I never had that mindset coming out of college, working at Mitsubishi. What did you want to do when you went into business school? I wanted to do like a social enterprise. Okay. So it had nothing to do with starting your own business. And business overall was not something that I was interested in growing up, surprisingly. But I went to business school because when I was in New York uh, with Mitsubishi, and I realized how much I took for granted the, the fact that life is easy because of the Mitsubishi name. Ah. And, and living in New York, you meet so many talented people who come from all over the world and they're all hungry to succeed or you know, create something. And I realized that you know, I'm living in a small bubble and I'm so protected and yet, if I was, you know, kicked out, what what will I do? You know, what can I do? And I, I, I really think that that moment when I was in New York when I was 24 was when I just had this moment, this moment when I realized that I need to get out of here. I need to actually go out there and like survive on my own. And so, and I didn't know what else to do but go and get an MBA. So that was my choice. But after you got the MBA mm -hmm. and you started your own company, that's a huge step. Yeah. Were your, were your parents supportive? I'm sure they were very surprised you didn't go in. Or maybe they weren't. I mean, were they surprised you didn't go into management consulting or banking? Oh, no, no. They were definitely not surprised. <laughs> okay. Um, they saw this coming. They saw it coming. <laughs> they actually have given up on me okay. at this point. <laughs> oh. they, they feel like I will do whatever I want and they will want to support me 
if it makes me happy and I'm not disturbing anyone else. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think、um, because I'm like the wild one in the family. Because when I left Mitsubishi, I decided to go and hang out in Buenos Aires for three months because I loved to dance tango. And at that point, my parents thought she's crazy. They were worried that I might not even end up going to business school because I might end up falling in love with someone in Buenos Aires and becoming a tango dancer. <laughs> and literally, they actually thought that would happen. So, founding a company is definitely a move in the right direction. That's right. <laughs> It's crazy enough. So you started a company in the United States because, well, that's where you were when opportunity presented itself. A lot of young Japanese now are moving to the U.S. to start companies. Yeah, is that something that? Do you think that's because of a lack of opportunities to start companies here in Japan, or do you think it's an image? What kind of founders do you think would benefit from? Going to the U.S. to start a company rather than starting one here. Well, I think Japan is a great place to start a company. There is just so much opportunity here. Not as much competition as in the U.S. But if you're going to take the risk and you know create something from scratch, why not do it in the most impactful way? And、right. for me, you know, if if I was going to do this fashion business, I had to do it in New York. It's very personal reason. It wasn't really about. Just market size and opportunity, and in fact, it would probably be easier for me to do this business in Japan. But the potential upside is、That's、much、right. greater in New York.、That's、You're、right. in the middle of exactly, and part of it is also the experience, right? So for me, I grew up in so many places in the world where if I'm going to build a company and build a team, I want to build it in a city where there's amazing talent、mm-hmm. from all over the world, and it's super diverse. And for me. I felt like if I started a company in Japan, it, it seems kind of like same old. It wouldn't have had the same excitement for me to think about building an organization in Japan than to do it in, in in the most competitive city in the world. So New York has much bigger challenges, but much bigger rewards. That's right. So if you have that kind of mentality, then you should absolutely do something elsewhere. I mean, yes, people will tell you that you it will be easier to run a business back home,、um, but I honestly disagree with anyone who who tells you to stay somewhere because, I mean, the more you learn, the more opportunities you find, and the more business opportunities you find, and you also build. Um, this perspective that only you may have because you happen to have different perspectives from living in different places. So,、okay. um, I yeah, I am all for encouraging everyone to just kind of do it anywhere in the world. I mean,、Excellent. people are going to Mars, you know, like you know, soon、uh, with commercial flights. Why restrict ourselves to the island? Particular place you are right now. Yeah. All right. Listen, you you do a lot of business in New York. And in Japan, and we finally got a chance to sit down together while you're traveling through Tokyo. And before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Magic wand.、Mm-hmm. Which is, if I gave you a magic wand, and I said you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all,、mm-hmm. to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? Well, I do think it comes back to. I don't know if this is a, a good answer, but. I think the one thing I would want changed is the mentality of what diversity means、oh. in Japan.、Um, 
I mean, startups, everyone follows the same track of what is considered a success or what to do to become happy. Uh, There is this, you know, social pressure to to be this, to follow this track that's already set by the society. So, so what is what is that track? Oh well, for example. Uh, work at a big company, uh, right? Get married and buy a house. Uh, you know, travel once a year. Like, there's just um, you know, and as a woman, probably even a gazillion uh, more things are required um, or expected of you. Cook for your, you know, husband. You know, morning and dinner. Uh, take care of your kids, right? So like just these set social set, roles. Exactly, and I, I just feel like um, we live in such a diversified world now, where there are different ways to structure your life and your career. Whether you want to work at a startup or you want to work at a big company, whether you want to um, not get married uh, or you know not have children, um, I think just being able to accept diversity will help a lot more people feel comfortable being different and taking that yeah. leap to be different. Well, I think you're really on to something there because it's not a, a society that really fosters entrepreneurship and new ways of thinking economically mm-hmm. by definition. Yeah. Almost has to foster new ways of thinking socially. That's right. Politically. Um, you can't isolate innovation to like, okay, it's useful economically, but not socially. That's right. So we, you'd use the magic wand to let Japanese people be a little more open to exploring diversity in social opinion and social yeah, roles. That's right. Excellent. Yep. Hey, well, listen, Rhea, thanks so much for sitting down with me. It's been a blast. Thank you, Tim. Some of Japan's largest corporations are starting open innovation programs and are actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two W's, comes in. Crew runs open innovation programs for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more. And these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I know, and I work with the Crew team, And they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by crew with two W's dot M-E slash four hyphen startups and get started. And we're back. What I found to be the most interesting part of Material World's business model was the physical debit card. Not online credits, not an account balance, not loyalty points, but a physical piece of plastic that their members see each and every time they open their wallets and are reminded that they're part of the brand. That little piece of plastic is what lets Material World get insights into both the online and offline buying behavior of their customers and actually track fashion purchases across brands while having a good idea of what's in their customers' closets. It's incredibly valuable insights, and they're the only ones who have it. I was also impressed with Rie's willingness to do the hard things, the things that don't scale. Their decision to take on inventory risk, to take on the labor of photographing and marketing their items, is what set them apart from most peer-to-peer marketplaces. 
but it was also the only way they could control their quality, the customer experience, and ultimately, the brand itself. We'll be hearing a lot from Rie and Material World in the near future. If you've ever bought or sold high fashion online, Rie and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show058 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Rie and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And if you like what we're doing here at Disrupting Japan, share it with your friends. If you hate it, share it with your enemies. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.